0: This morning I thought I'd preach on the on the epistle from Second Corinthians, and the gospel. Uh, my reasoning is this: the Green Sundays are, of course, as I always say, about discipleship. They're also a time when we do a little uh, biblical stuff because my other hobby horse of the last couple of years is it's not as important what the Bible says as it is what the Bible means and so we have an account today in second corinthians by paul of a mystical experience that he has had and i want to say some things about mystical experiences and how we might understand them uh, from our perspective as anglican christians and to say then something that i have said more than once in the past about the Anglican spiritual tradition, what influences the way in which we understand the spiritual life and where mystical experiences or mysticism fits in. And then the gospel is about Jesus in his hometown and uh, the experience of the big discount. I bet there's more than one person here who has had some kind of an experience with their family like this in big and small ways. I know I have. And the pernicious work that it can work in somebody's sense of self and vocation as they move forward. And we have the affirmation, and maybe misery loves company, but even the savior of the world's effect was blunted by the uh, inability of the people around him to see that his vocation was legitimate. And then the second part of the gospel in the Revised Common Lectionary, we only read, uh, used to read in the Episcopal Lectionary, that pericope. How do you like that word? (laughs) Pericope. Pericope, just so you know, uh, pericope is a set of verses that forms one coherent unit or thought, thus forming a short passage suitable for public reading from a text Now usually of sacred scripture. So when I was in seminary, we studied a lot of pericopes in the class. And we have two put together today in the gospel, one following on the other. And the second one is about uh, Jesus sending disciples on a missionary journey to be the uh, ambassadors for Christ, so to speak. We would say after the Christ event and in some way to speak about this. Ignatius Loyola has it best, in my view, many centuries later when he said what we see here and in other places is Christ's invitation to join him in his work. And so the purpose of the Green Sundays is about how you and I find the ways and the means to join Christ in his work. And Jesus says some things today about how uh, he believes one ought to do that. But more than just the uh, details of this what it is that uh, is being said about our importance in the divine economy. My teacher, Urban Tigner Holmes III, many years ago at Neshota House, he by the way has written a wonderful little book that I still recommend to people called What is Anglicanism? It's quite short, it's still in print, And it is just superb. And he talks about the Anglican perspective on Christianity. And he has a chapter on spirituality. And in it he says this. In the Anglican spiritual tradition, there have been two threads that have run through our tradition uh, that we could say are significant. He refers to the first one as pietism and the second one as mysticism. So I'm going here because I want to say something about how I understand mysticism on a regular basis and find it congenial as opposed to the seeking and finding continuously of mystical experiences, which is what Paul is talking about in today's passage and I'll try to connect the two. Pietism in in the history of spirituality is a relatively recent thing in so far as it began to rise in Germany uh, in the Lutheran world, really in the 70s, Bach was deeply influenced by pietism and so on. It is the belief in the necessity of a felt presence of God, which becomes then your guarantee that you're in. Called sometimes in the old language the consolation. In other traditions, like the Baptist tradition, we might refer to it as being born again. But it is some felt experience that you know that God is now um, clicked in with you or you're clicked in with God. The more ancient tradition and the one that I believe is more congenial to our uh, species of Christianity is mysticism. And Terry Holmes used to define mysticism this way as the ascent to God, which involves a process of five things. Purg- I will explain some of these words in a minute. Purgation, emptying, study, discipline, and patience. So the mystical path involves doing stuff, putting it in your hands. It's the ways and means of discipleship in many ways. And it is the process by which you now move closer to God. Anglican Christians in their development in the, in the classical period and even earlier with the Elizabethan divines uh, had a great affinity to some Eastern Orthodox spirituality. And they used to talk a lot about how uh, this process that the Eastern Church talk, t- calls theosis, or deification, where as we live and seek to know God's will and purpose for us and engage in the disciplines that I have just described to you, we become less unlike God. So it is a process of affirming what Father Keating says. We are not God, but our true self is God. So there is a spiritual process that one can undertake to do this. Purgation is an old traditional word which means to to purge yourself of those things that keep you from being centered in God. And understanding, you know, I keep saying about how we need to sort of sometimes not always think in religious categories. So we need to purge ourselves of behaviors, ways of being and relating, ways of uh, being in the world that uh, keep us from uh, doing what we need to do. The old dean of my seminary in the first year we took ascetical theology always said, uh, you know, you've got to do get up in the morning and observe the duties of state. Get up and brush your teeth. Right? That's, a, that's important to do. So purgation is removing those habits of being and relating that keep you from uh, beginning this, this process or continuing on it emptying is it has to do generally with with a type of your prayer life and in your own in, in, in other aspects of your life where you need to do some serious thinking and reflecting and um, analyzing you need to learn how to get rid of distraction and so you push to the side those things that are in your mind is cluttering up we have a constant. It's, it's uh, Father Keating refers to it as like sitting in front of the Suez Canal and watching the ships. That's what's going on in our head, you know, some form of constant movement. None of us have a, uh, the perfect ability to rid ourselves of that, but we can learn somehow to push it aside and to concentrate in some way and stay focused on the things that we need to stay focused on. I one time made a retreat. At the Benedictine Monastery at Three Rivers, Michigan, which is an Episcopal Benedictine monastery. And I was talking to Father Leo, the oldest monk there. And I was telling him about how distracted I was about stuff. And he said, Well, you know, David, sometimes when you're distracted, all you can offer is the distraction. <laughs> so do it. You know, just own up to it. I'm just so distracted here, I can't, you know, hear myself think, right? And uh, remember, thinking is, uh, or prayer sometimes can be understood as a piece of straight thinking about God. But this also means, shorn of its religious vocabulary, that uh, emptying has something to do with learning how to focus and pay attention. And we're in a world with the remote. So as soon as it gets boring, or we're wondering if there's something better somewhere else, we're off. And the ability to sit and focus is not there. Purgation, emptying, study. Be the best student of the deep things of Christian faith and belief that you can be. Be the best student of all of the things that you need to be a student of in order to function at a high level and to pursue excellence. So you need to keep up. It's very important. you know. So if you have a field that you're involved in or something like this, you need to... Stay up and you need to read about it or do whatever you need to do in order to uh, maintain uh, that level of excellence. So, study is part of this. Um, Discipline the cultivation of the interior self regulation to meet the demands and the opportunities that are in front of you. So, that means that all of us need to learn how to do that. One of the things that's again very hard for our culture is that discipline involves the self-regulation of instinctual drives. <clears throat> Any time you hear people talk to you about, "Well, this is natural," right? Well, there's a lot of stuff that's natural, isn't there? And sometimes we need to embrace it, and sometimes we've tried to live at a level above natural that isn't healthy. But at the same time, we also spend the time we need to or should on not doing the things that come naturally. (laughs) Regulating them or doing them when it is appropriate to do them. Right? Impulse control, as it turns out, is something that's important for people if they're going to be affected. So it may have something to do with, with that. That's part of the mystical path. And finally, the most difficult one of all is patience. And that's that if you engage in these processes and believe that you're going to come out the other end in some uh, not-too-distant future, you're fooling yourself because things are not going to turn out that way. And Paul tells us that as a result of his experience, for example, he has been given a thorn in the flesh. That doesn't seem like a very good reward for having a very profound mystical experience. But anyway, think about mysticism as the journey Uh, towards uh, being centered in God. Paul, in this section of 2 Corinthians, is engaged in an elaborate defense of his apostleship. Because in his absence, there are people who have come into Corinth and who have said that his teaching is inauthentic and that their teaching is authentic. And apparently, one of the things that they have said to the people in Corinth is, that it is not only necessary to have these mystical experiences, but they, the teachers, seem to be having one right after another. And so Paul, who has been, relative, has been reticent to speak of these things to the Corinthian congregation, now is compelled in an almost oblique way, he refers to, the, to himself in the third person as having had this profound mystical experience. Biblical scholars would tell you that within the first century A.D., there are four well-known rabbis who have described uh, experiences in real life like this, so when Paul talks about what he said there, which is sort of baffling to me and probably to you, it's something that in the thought world of his day would have been, there would have been people who could have made the connections probably a little bit better uh, than we can. But he says as the result of this, he has, uh, can, you know, he's, he's, he's right up there with anybody who's had a profound experience. But he says the only thing I want to commend myself by is h- how you see me be and relate here. Not the credentials that I uh, may give you with regard to a lot of things that, in, to be frank, are very hard to substantiate and very hard to uh, repeat in any important way. But one of the great lines in this is, well, there are a number of great lines, but in order to keep me from being too elated, in the recovery movement, sometimes in some parts of the country, they say, may your recovery be slow. It's not good to get too happy or to confuse happy with euphoria. You know? It's easy to make that mistake, isn't it? And so Paul, like all of us, when you have an experience that probably was sublime, uh, would be anxious to maybe either talk about it all the time or feel that you have been uh, picked as somebody who's very special indeed. And in order to keep him from being this way, he says that he has received a thorn in the flesh. You know, there have been oceans of ink spilled (coughs) over trying to figure out what in the world the thorn in the flesh is. Dr. Reginald Fuller, the late Anglican biblical scholar, said since the the patient has been dead for 2,000 years, it's very hard to have a sure diagnosis, <laughs> but just so you know, here's some of the here's some of the ones: epilepsy, ophthalmolic condition, and depression, which um, might be the one that could be the most uh, authentic, given the fact that. You know, in the spiritual life, you experience something that we call dryness, and uh, or just uh, apathy, and uh, that can fall over into uh, depression fairly easily. Right? Uh, it's uh, uh, called axody in Greek. So maybe, but it doesn't matter what it is. He said he's got something that he's has to work on. It's part of what it is. Uh, some Mark Twain maybe somebody said, you know, it sometimes may be a good idea for you to have a chronic illness that you have to do something about as you live because it provides you with the opportunity to uh, stay focused on something, right, in an important sense. Anyhow, Paul is saying you and I need to be humble about the things that we. Uh, have experiences that we have had that have been extremely beneficial to our spiritual growth and development, and to commend them to other people with great humility. And you and I always ought to be suspicious of anybody who is too ready to do this and commends uh, us, any of us seeking these experiences out. All of the great writers on the spiritual life, particularly in early Christianity, have warned people, don't do this. During the period of the Desert Fathers, when a lot of people fled into the desert in the 3rd and the 4th century AD and lived by themselves as hermits or in small communities, the sort of beginnings of what we would call monasticism, uh, used to say, boy, I ran out into the desert to get away from the way the world was operating during the late part of the Roman Empire, and I ran smack dab into stuff I wish I had never had to run Right? So be careful about that. And that's what Paul is warning us about. Um, I'll say something maybe at the discussion time more about that. But that's what we learned from the reading from Paul. The, The reading from Mark's Gospel, the first part of it, has something to do with the big discount. Jesus goes to Nazareth. He gets up in the synagogue to talk. By the way, we dug up a lot of these places now. what we've realized is that in, in the first century, in first century Palestine, there was a, a lot of this, a lot more synagogues than we thought outside of Jerusalem, and synagogue life and synagogue worship was far more active. We thought it had really flowered after the temple was destroyed in 70 a d but it's been around more it was around longer than that. So we actually know what the configuration of the room would be like where they were all there. Jesus is here's the Torah in the middle, and they read from that, and they're doing it, and everybody's sort of sitting around the edge like this, and he's speaking in the synagogue, and they go, where does he get this stuff, right? Isn't he uh, Mary's son? Inside baseball readers would say, why didn't is no mention made of Joseph? Perhaps already in Nazareth, there are some rumors going around about Jesus's. And aren't these his sisters and brothers? Isn't he the carpenter? Nobody would believe for a minute that the reason Jesus can say and do these things is because he is centered in God. It is somewhat alarming to him that in the course of this he makes allusions to the fact that he is the Son of God or people make those illusions, and when that happens, of course, it makes them nervous because it involves then a reordering of their understanding of family in their own age. I get a big kick. I have This is pure editorialism on my part, I know, so forgive me. I get a great kick out of all the conversation in this country about family values. Because Jesus stood at a very critical distance from the, the, the idea of family, even in his own day, and the things he said about family were uh, yeah you know so when he when we talk about well you know Jesus is the exemplar of family values, give me a break he was he was actually. an advocate for the best kind of family values, which means that uh, all of us belong to the family of God and all of us are children of God and unconditionally accepted, loved, and forgiven no matter what, and that each of us need to be an ambassador for that great and powerful truth in the world. Many years ago, I was at an extended family event And I was required. I'd been a priest for about 10 or 12 years. My family are not Episcopalians. And my becoming an Episcopalian was uh, somewhat controversial. So I came to this thing, and I had to get up. uh, And I got up and said the things that I was going to do and sat down. And one of my family's friends leaned over to me and said, "Do you do much public speaking in your work? (laughs) I said a little (laughs) but it nicked me it made me feel uh, well perturbed (coughs) and it can sort of take the wind out of your sails uh, in a way that It it might not if you were feeling a little bit more resilient. Depends on things, right? I mean, there are days, aren't there, when uh, the slightest little inconvenience makes you want to burst into tears, so you never know. In any case, Jesus could do no mighty work there because of this lack of belief and this uh, taking somebody seriously. You know, those of us who want to live through our children vicariously and have a plan for them and want them to do things a certain way or hope they, do, or, or, or live their life a certain way and check the boxes and dot the I's and cross the T's and then they uh, live their lives and they don't do the things that way. They do them a different way. And uh, sometimes they choose vocations or have... Uh, A desire to to do things that just don't fit uh, the mold that we believe ought to be the one. And some people have a terrible time with this. And some people, maybe with some degree of innocence, being generous about this, can say and do things which can involve from time to time some real soul murder. So it's important for us to be careful about this. And the Savior of the world could do no mighty work there except lay his hands and, he, and, and cure a few sick people, it says. So that has great power. And we have a great responsibility to, uh, you know, if you love your kids unconditionally, that's what it means. So what they do, they do. Right? And I always think about that when, uh, when I read this. In the missionary journey, this uh, has something to do with our part in God's plan for the cosmos. He is sending out people to be the ambassadors, the transparencies and reflections of his message about the kingdom of God. And he gives them some specific instructions about how they are to behave and so forth, again fitting into a particular world. That uh, was around in, in first-century Palestine, but in those things he tells them that they are to uh, do things a certain way, to set a certain kind of example, or to intensify what it is that his message is. And one of the ones that uh, one of the things in there that I have always uh, first su- was surprised about, but now am. am uh, can understand its power is He said, if you meet resistance and you're in a place, when you continuously meet resistance, when you leave that place, you shake the dust off your feet. I think in the ancient Near East that was a very powerful sign and you didn't want anybody to do that. <laughs> and in this particular case, it is uh, an affirmation by Jesus to say if somebody (coughs) rejects God's blessing then you just shake them off your feet in our lives sometimes we have to come to those decisions don't we when finally you know you may have to and maybe this is some biblical support if you're struggling with some difficult relational thing where you've got people who just don't learn from experience or who continuously resist. You need to shake them off your feet and move to another place, a place of health and wholeness. So this week, here's some of the things that are important. Be careful about the mystical experiences that you... You know, you may think, what? In 1972, there was a survey written by two sociologists named Glaucon Stark called American Piety, and they said 80% of all of the people in our survey reported that they had had some kind of direct experience of God at least once in their life in America. So this is not something that uh, people, uh, you know, is, is rare. Joseph Campbell had an experience like this on, on the track at Columbia University, and he describes it to Bill Moyers in that series. And he said, at that moment, it may have been for an I knew exactly where I fit into the, c- the creation. Click. I had the absolute for a moment. And he said, from then on, I had determined I was going to follow my bliss. Whatever that may mean, right? <laughs> you know, you can go, oh, no. <laughs> but all I'm mentioning to you is that to take those experiences seriously, But be somewhat reserved about it. Thank God for them and use them to help you. If you have some besetting difficulty, a thorn in your side, use it as a way to uh, learn something about God's plan because God told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. So whatever you're going through, at least hold that and own that and know that. And finally, um, learn how to be non-anxious in the face of the big discount with those near and dear to you. And realize too, as the gospel says, you have a role to play in God's plan for the cosmos. Amen. Amen. Cafe. Well prepared for your visit to Piskey Land. Yeah. <laughs> Today is packing. Oh. So it's Mary Beth back there. She's on the east. On the east. She starts.